Hey guys, this is Stu Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you know about a great Mises event coming up soon on April 22nd. We're going to be gathering in Birmingham, Alabama to talk about the Great Reset. If you're a fan of this podcast, you know we've talked a little bit about the, the managerial revolution, the World Economic Forum, the, the plans here and what we can do coming up and confronting this uh, you know, public-private axis of power. One of my favorite commentators on this issue is Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He is a regular on The Wire, has a tremendous amount of, of great insight on this topic, and he's written a book on the Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty. He will be speaking at this event. It's going to be a great time to meet him, get an autograph. We're going to have more speakers announced soon. And of course, the best thing about a Mises event is that you're going to get surrounded by people that share the same interests that you do. And it's always great to see you guys. So again, look at Mises.org slash Birmingham to register. It's April 22nd, Birmingham, Alabama. Hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm a senior editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, as usual, is my associate editor, Tho Bishop. And we're back again here for a episode to talk about a little bit about the domestic policy effects of foreign policy. So we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail about what's happening uh, abroad, but but more looking at what effect will some changes in foreign policy here mean for American politics in general. And, and to get a little bit more specific about that, it seems to me that foreign policy is a little bit more up in the air in terms of domestic politics than it has been, at least in the last 20, 25 years or so, in the sense of you're starting to see legislation get floated that you wouldn't have seen really discussed much at all, certainly wouldn't get a floor vote. That sort of thing. And so there's been, I think, in recent years, more and more, and I think it's really accompanied the Trump phenomenon. This is one of the the, the good aspects of the Trump phenomenon, is that there seems to be more skepticism about just the usual way of doing things in terms of foreign policy. And I think, and so we'll look at a couple examples of that and just who's supporting these and, and what are the chances they could possibly pass and what does this have to say about the direction of American foreign policy? And is, is there is anything changing? So we'll just kind of look a little bit at these. And I think the first example we can just look at is the fact that uh, we're, we're seeing some votes coming up and increasing talk about things like a war powers resolution or a vote on the authorization for the use of military force. So if you're if you're real old, you might re you might remember a talk about the War Powers Resolution from the 70s, right? And this was an attempt uh, that Congress brings up every now and again is to actually create some legislation uh, that would actually rein in the president in terms of what he can do. Hearing a little bit more talk about that, I think in terms of concrete action, you're seeing attempts to uh, get rid of the old. Uh, authorizations for the use of military force, which go back, if you can believe it, to 1991, the one for Iraq in 1991, still on the books. And then there's one in 2002 that applies specifically to Iraq, still on the books. And so the question is, uh, do we need to have this legislation out there that basically gives a blanket ability to invade Iraq at any time? 
And maybe that's not a good idea uh, because presidents, if anything happens in Iraq, they're like, well, we'll just start a new drone campaign. Uh, I've decided as president that Iran is in Iraq, so we'll just start bombing the country. They could then claim, oh, it's all legal because of this previous, this 30-year-old legislation about Iraq. And so they're talking about finally repealing those. They don't quite have the guts yet, it doesn't look like, to repeal the 2001 uh, authorization for the use of military force. And that's the one that has this much more generic legislation about the war on terror and al-Qaeda and all that sort of stuff. And they've been using that one day as in the White House, various White Houses, not just this current one, has been using that for years to start wars in a variety of countries. Just Syria, the most recent, saying that, well, uh, Al-Qaeda's in this country or they, they, they're somehow involved in this country, so we're just going to start a war in this new country where we didn't have a war before. So that's been used uh, again and again to just start new wars. And uh, there was a quote here, I want to say, from Senator Kane, and he's one of the, the co-sponsors on repealing just the 91 in 2002, AUMF, as it's called. And he says, um, and of course, it doesn't involve anything about apologizing for the failed war in Iraq or anything like that. It's just sort of the usual, oh, our military is stronger without it sort of BS. But it says that Keynes says, quote, the 1991 and 2002 AUMFs are no longer necessary, serve no operational purpose and run the risk of potential misuse, unquote. I've just found that to be kind of funny. It's like the understatement of like the, I don't know, the last 25 years. Uh, Oh, potential misuse. Yeah, no actual misuse there, even though the U.S. has used this in uh, a multitude of cases to to kill people and may even have been used to justify Obama's killing of that American citizen and (laughs) who was born in the U.S. and then killed by drone because the the White House decided he was a terrorist. Uh, No trial, no nothing. So that's the sort of stuff that happens under this legislation. Uh, Now, it's my understanding that there is some pressure to repeal the 2001 also, but of course the Heritage Foundation, all the usual suspects are totally against that because they need carte blanche to uh, start wars to fight al-Qaeda at at whenever. Um, But though, kind of, as this relates to our issue of is there anything changing in the overall foreign policy atmosphere in domestic politics— do you, do you think this is the fact that this is getting more play as a result of that? And uh, what are you hearing in terms of people who still? Because I seem to remember Rand Paul wanting to uh, uh, repeal uh, the 2001 one, which would be a m- much more bold move. Uh, and maybe some other uh, Republicans as well are trying to get rid of that one. What have you heard on that? You know, there's, there's progress on both sides of the House. And it's interesting, and, and this is something I, that is, you're seeing mirrored in some of the stuff that Matt Gates is trying to do with the Syrian conflict, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, is that you have a very interesting coalition kind of emerging from the more um, Tea Party-ish sort of flavor types um, or, or the America First kind of brand of Republican um, so people, I believe in the House, kind of leading the charge on the Iraq issue in particular um, is, is Tom Cole from Oklahoma. Um, it's Chip Roy from Texas, along with like Barbara Lee from California on the House side. And then you have, you have Senator Kane is kind of leading the charge with, with support from Rand Paul in the Senate. So you had this very interesting overlap of very ideologically opposed forces 
having a growing coalition to reset some of the standing policy on these things. And you, I, I think it's, it's a good sign on just how worried certain actors are on this, where you have uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, um, made just this week an unannounced visit to Iraq, um, pledging continued U.S. troop presence there, uh, talking with with the, the relatively new Iraqi president there um, about, you know, don't don't worry, no matter what's going on in the Senate, we've got your back. We're going to we're going to keep you know, making sure that we're, we're we're pumping money into this thing. We're going to have our troops on board, yada, yada. Um, it's interesting that you, you mentioned um, heritage as which I think is kind of easy kind of catch off for for big conservative ink, even heritage on the issue of the um Iraq war authorizations is pushing for ending the old authorized use of military force resolutions. So again, this kind of mirrors this very interesting realignment on the right from some of the institutional forces on board, um, some of the the interesting coalitions in terms of legislators um, trying to actually do do the work on this. And whether it is, I, I think we're kind of seeing a, a complete pivot. I, th I think, you know, best illustrated by the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, which which is interesting kind of its own right because the, the, the Afghanistan withdrawal, which obviously something you know we, we celebrate, like getting out of Afghanistan was the right move. The logistics and the the actual uh, you know performance of it, the, the actual execution of the withdrawal there kind of reeked of intentional sabotage, if you will, by certain actors that want to make sure that we will not do this again in Iraq and in some of these areas where we've had a very long-lasting military presence there. It's interesting where I, I don't think it, – it, it seems like even, even Republicans who want – you know you are very quick to bring up the kind of disastrous optics. You know, we've got you know, Afghanis kind of clinging on to you – know, aircraft, you know, out of, out of just kind of the, the chaos of the Afghanistan withdrawal, the fact that that has not really shaken what had been a, what, what I think is, is a gradual trend that we've seen over time kind of, you know, really originating with Trump's election and all the rhetoric changes there from the historic GOP. It's very promising that Afghanistan is not seemingly being used as an effective argument to prevent these sort of conversations and the realignment and, and kind of really questioning continued presence in some of these Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, that's true. You just never hear about Afghanistan anymore, do you? And <laughs> I guess that didn't work. The attempt to say, well, you have to have a proper withdrawal. You bought it. You broke it. You bought it sort of argument, which is something they've been using for years and years. Right. And uh, so then you just have to stay in Afghanistan forever until it's a prosperous, democratic, Republican country or whatever. And well, that just that whole plan failed totally and uh, without like really much recompense uh, in Afghanistan, just a complete and total failure. And now the Taliban's back in charge. I mean, so, yeah, everything they told you about Afghanistan uh, was just a lie, either a lie or sheer incompetence. And then the people who died there, uh, the Americans that died there. The, it was for nothing. And so, yeah, you should feel horribly betrayed by your government if you uh, if you paid 
uh, big time for that war more than just the average uh, taxpayer. So, yeah, such a great tragedy all around. And so I guess the whole uh, attempt to show that you, you got to do withdrawal the right way just didn't work because you just never hear about it anymore. But let's talk about Syria a little bit. Um because it does see that there are, seem that there are some efforts in uh, Congress to actually end that occupation as well. And in case you haven't been paying close attention, although we don't think of Syria as a ongoing war and occupation, the fact is the U.S. has troops there, has had troops there for years, especially in eastern Syria. And the claim is that it's there to fight Al-Qaeda. I think the real reason, of course, is some power politics in the region um, to uh, to keep the Russians from having too much uh, foothold in the country because the Russians uh, also have they have a naval base of sorts, it's like a refueling station It is a small base uh, in Syria. And so Syria is just a real diehard Russian uh, ally. So the U.S. just figure, hey, we got to occupy part of the country then just so we keep an eye on these Syrians. Um, and then, of course, uh, they claim it's it's to uh, reign in ISIS in northern Iraq, none of which, of course, has anything to do with actual defending the United States, uh, which it seems that maybe some people have figured that out. And there are some efforts to withdraw from Syria. But I have I have no this seems to be just the early, early beginning stages of talking about that. What do you think of that? When part of this is a catalyst, the catalyst for this was that uh, a few weeks ago, I believe, um, there was actually there was an incident where um, a handful of American troops and, and I believe a dog, which perfect for propaganda purposes always, um, uh, an ISIS-related mission in Syria, catalyst for for Matt Gates trying to to make a uh, congressional push on this. Um, I know he's he's kind of dealt with some of the language there. It started off, I believe, with like a 30-day withdrawal from Syria. I think now it's at 180 days. With He was trying to kind of build a broader co coalition there. And he has succeeded to a certain extent where you have the um, progressive caucus in the House um, on, on the Democrat side that have endorsed as a body this resolution. Um, you're going to see several of you know a good i think a good amount of the america first republican congressional crowd there um people like uh, tim burkett who's a congressman up in tennessee um an underrated congressman on the war issue i'm sure you're gonna see the, the masseys and um the chip roys and you know the marjorie taylor greens of the world as well on it um we are you know kind of you know uh, uh letting the audience know on when we are talking about this this is we were talking at a Wednesday afternoon um, prior to the vote going on. I believe that is set for later tonight on Wednesday. Um, I, I am I'm not overly optimistic about it getting the numbers that it needs to pass. Um, but I do think this is a, it's going to be the most progress that's been made on the House side on this particular conflict. And and I think that it, it if you are looking for I know a few several weeks ago, there was a um, anti-war with a focus on the, the Russian conflict, obviously, but not exclusively on that kind of a, a, a an anti-war rally where you had Ron Paul and you had Tulsi Gabbard and you had um, some of the, the Libertarian Party folks, the, the Mises Caucus style libertarians, along with, you know, some fringe other you know, political actors and a few active Russian um supporters, which, you know, optics wise, I'll let you 
decide on that one. Um, you know, the, the goal there being like, oh, well, we're neither left nor right. We can build an anti-Warsaw coalition. I, I, I'm a little cynical and jaded on the role that, you know, a bunch of, again, as much as I love Ron and have a good amount of respect for even Tulsi Gabbard on this, um, you know, I, I don't think the way they change foreign policy right now is through third parties and former politicians. I think it is some of the progress that we're going to see with the Matt Gates crowd in there. And the fact that you have, again, members of the far left and the far right in the battle, um, in the trenches, in the House, seriously looking at this um, with support being echoed by the Tucker Carlson wing of the American conservative movement alongside, I mean, there's very uh, uh, favorable articles being written by The Intercept, right? You know, here you're actually kind of seeing a little bit of that good old-fashioned, you know, 2008 Ron Paul, Dennis Kucinich style of of members of Congress actually trying to work together um, to to make a pivot in foreign policy here. Um, Obviously, they did not have success back then. Um, I think there is reason to believe that perhaps not with this vote, but with continuing momentum here, that the, the difficulty on defending these things, again, kind of going back to the, the uh, conversations about the authorization of military force in Iraq, I think th- I think we're going to see in general a, 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 continue, a continuation of this Middle Eastern pivot, you know, the war on terror is so last year style approach. Um, now, again, unfortunately, while... Congress is losing interest in the Middle East. The chances of nuclear war in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict are, are arguably escalating um, with, with some interventions going on within Russia now from the Ukrainian side. Um, and, and there's, there's you know, we're going to talk about some stuff at the southern border here soon. Um, but I, I'm interested to see just how quickly we actually close the doors for real with some of these Middle Eastern conflicts even though we know a lot of the actors at B are trying to, to amplify and escalate things elsewhere. Yeah, I think I, what I would expect more is that uh, the more unpopular it becomes, right, as you get more vote, even if they're failed votes in Congress, right, even if you get a substantial minority that shows the, the waning popularity of the current state of U.S. foreign policy. I think that that's then a motivation, not necessarily to withdraw from these countries, but to just be more quiet about it and just to talk about it less, to maybe scale down the occupations a little bit so it's just in the news more because there's, of course, interest group politics behind this. And what really matters is keeping the spending going and the wars going. And if you can do that without uh, drawing any attention from the public, I think those things can can keep going for a long, long time. Uh, and that's probably why you need more explicit legislation. But as you say, right, it can take several votes. When you look at the history of legislation, right, things can sit and be uh, voted on numerous times before they finally uh, pass over a period of years. And so you just need to keep bringing these up. Um, you just need to keep telling your congressperson uh, how uh, you you don't care about the war in Syria. You know it has nothing to do with keeping you safe. Um, they're, of course, then going to get calls from various interest groups telling them to vote a certain way. But, it, I mean, Ron Paul used to say, right, he's like, you know, it's it's not a cure-all, but actually uh, contacting your congressperson uh, to tell them how wrong they are does make a difference because they do assume that other people feel that same way uh, in the district. 
but of course, you say that to a lot of more skeptical people. They're like, well, just vote harder, right? Well, yeah, as, as a short-term strategy, it doesn't get you very much. Uh, but you, you do need to get to the point where uh, you you can make it clear and come up with ways to make life more difficult. That's the thing is is electing good people to Congress or electing the right people. It doesn't really mean anything. the The only way they vote properly, and this has always been true, the only way people will oppose bad legislation and support good legislation is if they're afraid of losing the next election because of voting wrong. As far as the public's concerned, I mean that's. That's what has the most effect. So they need to be afraid of the voters. That's the only thing that has really uh, that that makes a difference. And so as long as they're not, as long as they think most people don't care and all of that. So it's I always think it's great when people go to these town halls and they scream and they yell and they make life really difficult uh, for members of Congress. I think that's all to the good. It makes them realize that the natives are restless. So uh, fine. And I do think votes like this coming up actually do tend to move things in that direction, because it also tends to keep those topics in the spotlight. And I think Congress prefers that things like their wars just aren't even mentioned at all um, and is just not even an issue uh, up for debate. However, if we need any evidence that these things are only that many in Congress only wish to expand foreign policy meddling, we can see that now in recent moves to now start uh, expanding the war on terrorism to uh, Mexico. Because now we've got all these moves from Lindsey Graham, from our buddy Dan Crenshaw, uh, who uh, we, <laughs> we love to hate on here at Radio Rothbard, and then from former Attorney uh, General William Barr, who uh, wants to designate the cartels in Mexico as a terrorist group, which that's not just a mere defining of things, right? That's the, the whole point of that then is to pave the way for U.S. intelligence agencies to meddle then in that country and to actually use military uh, force uh, if deemed necessary, whatever the standard for that might be, uh, in Mexico. Now, of course, that opens like a whole can of worms, right? Mexico is not a friendly country to U.S. military uh, uh, intervention. They they don't do joint drills with the U.S., uh, uh, hardly ever. Um, there aren't U.S. military bases in Mexico. This is all because of deep, deep-seated attitudes toward American occupation and American meddling in Mexico. That goes way back because the U.S. used to have like a, a, an American pastime of invading Mexico like every 10 years and meddling there in another variety of ways. And so the Mexicans don't care for that. And so it's, it's like... Uh, it's like political poison to be seen as a Mexican politician who plays too nice with the U.S. military establishment. So uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, the Mexicans will invite us in to deal with the cartels and all of that. Um, I, I, <laughs> just the whole thing seems so stupid because what they are telling us is that, oh, the U.S. will figure out a way to deal with these cartels. Well, we can't build a wall. We can't control the flow of immigrants in from Mexico. We have no control over the border in general. Uh, we don't really know what's going on in Mexico. Our intelligence there with the cartels is bad. But we're going to come up with like a perfect magical strategy to deal with the cartels. So you can see how much magical thinking is really going into this. It's just, hey, we're going to solve the cartel problem by just going in and doing it. Uh, well, <laughs> how do they think that's going to happen? But this is just what they always do, right? Is they, We've got these big plans and the military can do anything. and But all they've shown is that the U.S. has uh, screwing up again and again in terms of managing 
the situation with Mexico and the Mexican border. So why is there any reason to believe that the U.S. would get this right? Um, but this is just, I mean, clearly there are plenty of Republicans in Congress that have not not lost faith at all in the military establishment's ability to do uh, super duper work in foreign countries. And I think we're now seeing that with the Mexico thing. Well, it's funny because, you know, Donald Trump right now in his campaign um, for you know, 2024, he's in this very interesting spot where you, he can't simply run on everything he ran on in 2016 because you had four years. And, you know, if, if the things aren't done, right, that kind of opens up some obvious questions there. And so part of really the, the big focus of sort of his his new jokes, if you will, his, his, his new material is the fentanyl issue. And that has included both calling for um, China style executions of drug dealers and for the willingness to use military force at the southern border. And you've seen this kind of echoed by both the, the Lindsey Grahams, which you know definitely a, a hawk through and through, but someone who has been very astute at playing the role of Trump sycophant. And then, um, you know, Crenshaw, um, you know, Patch McCain, who, you know, has had no problem, you know, he, he kind of kind of relishes being that sort of mavericky, oh, I'm just the truth teller that the media is going to love because I'm saying mean things about Trump and Republicans and tell us that we need to act like grownups and all that sort of, you know, typical Washington, um, you know, stupidity and things like that are on board with this style approach. But you're right, the, 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 the notion of, of any sort of form of, of you know, state capacity, again, it, it, to, to, to deal with any of this sort of stuff is, is humorous. And again, the, 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 the international relations fallout would be disastrous. Um, you know, it, 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 they're, they're simply looking for the ability, the, the problem is this, the, the, the fentanyl problem within America is a very real issue. And you know, it, rather than looking backwards and trying to deal seriously with the ways that, you know, the, the various laws led to people getting addicted on opioids and then their access to prescription opioids have been rolled back out of a legislative approaches to try to, to deal with that, um, that, that are creating a, a huge demand there, whether it's, again, I think there is a border aspect to it. Um, as well with, with the way that that leads to supplies getting in and a refusal of Washington to do anything serious on that side of things. Um, the, the larger crisis of meaning that has people very depressed and people do drugs when they're depressed in many parts of the country, right? The, the economic ruin as part of, you know, we, we can talk about the financialization and, and the impact that's had certain parts of the country, right? This is a problem that's complicated and it's real. And there's people's lives that are shaped in, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in this country who their number one issue is fentanyl because they've left lost someone near and dear to it. And so if you're a politician, then you don't want to deal with that. So it's a lot easier to say, you know, we're going to go Rambo on the cartels. And, you know, that's just, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it's a stupid solution to a very serious problem. And, and one that I, I think ultimately, at the, you know, time goes on, I, I don't think there's any real real threat of America invading Mexico anytime soon. Um, but I have a feeling, though, that this is going to be something that continues to be brought up and become something a, a little bit like the rhetoric on China from a, a military perspective and not not some of the, the other more nuanced positions there. I, I think that military action against cartels is something that is going to continue 
to be one of those, you know, online bumper sticker style solutions from the right at a problem that really needs, you know, some, some, so a lot more thought and, and serious reflection on. I suppose in a certain way, there's, there's like some growth there in, in the sense of recognizing that at least Americans could probably find Mexico on a map. Like they at least know it's next to the United States, I think for the most part, whereas you ask most Americans, uh, perhaps even to this day where Ukraine is on the map, probably still couldn't find it. Uh, and so I guess you could see how it would be more rewarding uh, to go after Mexico for a variety of reasons. But of course, lo and behold, the the alleged party of personal responsibility, um, you're not to blame if you take sketchy street drugs that might kill you. It's some cartelist in Mexico. They're really at fault. And so you, you just uh, obviously no coherence. Uh, there whatsoever. So, so now the, it's, the drugs aren't the, aren't the fault of the people who demand them. It's, it's the fault of the people who supply them. And of course, that's been an argument, kind of sort of this generic argument that a lot of libertarians have made. But I mean, l- let me say this. You, you, uh, you knock down just by 30% the amount of fentanyl coming into the U.S., you get that wall built, you actually control the flow of migrants across the border, and then I might even entertain slightly your idea that a U.S. military operation in Mexico is going to solve the problem. How about you show competence in some area of Mexico relations, and then we'll give you your war down there. But so far, they've shown nothing but incompetence in every area. So no thanks. I think I'll, uh, uh, I think I'll pass on that one. But I mean, that's that's what they got planned for. And yeah, you're right. I think we're just going to keep seeing it come up again and again. And we should know, by the way, that the whole invade Mexico thing that does come up like every 10 years is a fairly serious push. It came up in some of his worst takes. Pat Buchanan, who I generally like, uh, has uh, I remember in the past over the last 20 years promoted invading Mexico to stop the flow of migrants more than once. Uh, I mean, just just a weird take. I have no idea how that would actually produce uh, a solution. But yeah, this is something that gets said, and I guess people like it. So yeah, let's just expect more of that. But uh, but I mean, some of the more sane people, I think, would be like, I don't expect Rand Paul, maybe, who's probably the most non-terrible U.S. senator, to spend a whole lot of time promoting expansion of the war on terror to Mexico. Um but maybe he won't come out wholly against it either, because maybe the constituents like that idea because it is closer to home. Uh, I don't know, but we'll see. But talk about something that's super expensive and uh, sh- and almost certain to fail. And and I I do think, and I, I know this has come up with with Zachary Yost in some of his writings on this friend of the show. Um, you know, watch his podcast with Ryan. Um, you know that if if we're thinking if we're conceptualizing what would a a a full on foreign policy pivot um, look like from the United States, there there is an argument that what it would look like is is not sort of of a a non interventionist inward looking you know if, you know ideal lack of a better word you know, libertarian vision. What it would probably look like would be something kind of you know readopting. A focus on like the Monroe Doctrine rather than the war on terror focus, rather than the obsession with NATO and Europe, um, and 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 you know the way that has played into the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, and and so I, I could see a situation where a Republican foreign policy pivot 
does lead to a lot more attention given to South America. And, and I, I, I think you can argue that, that there are some relative trade-offs to what our current approach is and this sort of stuff. But but that is a, a, a much larger. But again, if, if the if the goal is simply, oh, we're going to we're going to repackage the war on terror and we're going to put it on on the border there, um, you know, I have a feeling that's going to work just about as well as the war on terror did in Afghanistan. Um, and personally, I don't want to see the cartel with a whole bunch of <laughs> U.S. military weapon or, you know, weapons and things like that um, anytime soon, in my own uh, own personal opinion there. So I, I, I think that, again, that that pivot to South America could end up being something that that main is maintained i just fear that you do have you know the, the stupid aspects of the war party that will really sort of bang some of the drums here in a way that that might you know end up actually you know you you, you have uh you know if, if you get a a nikki haley style presidency um you know i, I could see crenshaw policy becoming american you know maybe becoming the american approach to some of these conflicts yeah, we all know how that sort of uh, administration would go. There would be no opposition whatsoever to any sort of welfare program or spending domestically. They would just uh, shore up support by supporting massive amounts of domestic spending so they didn't have to deal with that or fight any fights on that. And then they would massively want to expand spending and meddling in foreign countries as well. It would be basically a foreign policy-focused administration uh piled on top of massive welfare expansion. So you, you, that's a lot of what we saw in the second term of George W. Bush's uh, term, where, I mean, the, uh, the deficit exploded, spending exploded, and then, of course, uh, you ended up with a financial crisis where uh, everything just was, like, off the charts at that point. So, we, yeah, we've all seen this movie before in terms of the, uh, the mainstream GOP administration that, uh, that talks a lot about foreign policy. So... Yeah, hard pass on that one. Uh, but they're going to have their work cut out for them, though, if things continue as they're going uh, in terms of Ukraine stuff. And I think that'll be our last topic here is that, uh, boy, the the rhetoric war is not going that well uh, for the, the pro-war uh, Ukraine people in America. They, they're wrong again and again on this stuff. Uh, so, I mean, what, with, what have they been wrong on? Well, let's just let's just take you through some of them. At first, right when the Russians invade back in February of 2022, they uh, they roll on into uh, Ukraine, and then the claim is all over for all these people, many of whom were like these uh, claiming to be libertarian types, uh, that well, you this is like Munich 1938 again. If you if you let up, then. Uh, Russia is going to roll through uh, Hungary, through Poland, through the Baltics, through Central Europe. Next stop, uh, Bonn, Germany, basically was uh, their claim. That is so obviously never going to happen. And so their attempt to create this new domino theory that they were clearly trying to construct is just laughable nonsense now. Russia can barely manage to slog it through eastern Ukraine. They may eventually manage to get most of the country east of the river. We'll see. I'm skeptical of that. Uh, it looks like they'll they'll be limited to even less than that uh, once a negotiated settlement comes down. But the idea that they can expand uh, expand their power west of Ukraine or even into western Ukraine is uh, just was always a nonsense claim. 
Russia was always so weak. Their economy was smaller than Germany's economy alone, let alone compared to most of Western Germany. So just nothing going on there. Completely wrong about that, about the hysterics and the attempt to get a new Cold War going with that. Um, what else have, have they been wrong on here? Let's let's see. Oh, um, oh, the, well, there's the pipeline issue where, where that's starting to unravel quickly. So if if <laughs> what we were told after somebody, uh, according to Seymour Hersh, that somebody was the United States, but others say no, uh, blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, which carried natural gas to Germany from Russia. There was all these attempts by the intelligence community and the pro-war people to say that the Russians did it for some reason. And that narrative is now so obviously nonsense that the New York Times is now running an article saying, OK, well, yeah, it's obvious the Russians didn't do it. But now CIA tells us that some non-state uh, group that's that's pro-Ukraine did it. So it wasn't it wasn't us. It wasn't America that did it. It was it was some group out there that's that's pro-Ukraine. Now, what they're, they're now saying that in spite of telling us forever that uh, pulling off the whole pipeline sabotage was impossible for any non-state actor, that you needed the resources of a full-blown state. Well, they changed their mind on that. Now it's a non-state actor that did that. Uh, so we changed our mind on that. And then, of course, it's just, you know, trust us with the CIA. We, we say this is how it worked. But now they're not even trying to say that the Russians did it anymore. And so that's another thing they were wrong about. Then there was the other issue of, oh, well, all the world will ally behind us in our in our fight against autocracy. Well, it turns out that hasn't happened. Yep, you've got a nice alliance with Western Europe and Australia and the usual uh, people who do whatever the U.S. says to do. But uh, you have, when you have these U.N. votes on imposing sanctions on Russia, yes, you get far more yeses in terms of, yes, Russia's bad, than you get, no, Russia's fine. But what you got is this huge, you got dozens of countries in the middle that just abstain from the vote because they neither want to be seen as allies of either Russia or the U.S. in this fight because they see that it doesn't have anything to do with them. And who's, who's included in these groups that abstain? It's India and China. So a uh, huge portion of the world's population right there, two of the world's largest economy. Uh, you've got South Africa now has become an abstaining country. You've got most of Africa, which uh, doesn't want to starve itself by imposing sanctions on Russian wheat and that sort of thing. They need food. They're not interested in taking that bullet to please the United States. They've even been losing ground in the Americas, where, of course, Venezuela uh, has come down on the side of Russia there. But now Bolivia has switched on that. Uh, so they're losing votes, uh, Pakistan as well. They're losing votes, which is a huge country, by the way. I mean, they're losing support on this. The BRIC, all of the BRICS countries except Brazil uh, chose to not support the United States on the latest UN resolution condemning Russia. And so this idea of a new new Cold War and uh, the, uh, the, the world hates Russia now and, and will join us with sanctions hasn't happened. Russia's been able to continue to sell their oil, continue to have uh, working markets with other countries. And so most everything that these uh, pro-war people have predicted has proven to be completely untrue, grossly exaggerated on the part of the U.S. regime. And uh, just the, the picture that was painted of how the war was look would look is just completely wrong. So the question then is, 
uh, how <laughs> do Americans think everything's fine over there? Is the, do they just not care? I mean, what's what's the sense politically? Is this actually going to have any real sort of political repercussions uh, in the fact that what the, what the public was told about the war just just turned out to not be true at all? Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, the problem is that the echo chamber that your average member of Congress has on this issue is so isolated from where I, I think an increasing number of their constituents are. And, and, and the thing is, you, you still have, I think, you know, outside of, you know, conservatives get really, you know, ticked off about the numbers and the money going to Ukraine. I, you know, I, I think that the general tone of most of America is, is more apathy than it is outrage or concern. And so long as that is, that it kind of allows the blob to, to do things with without any shame. And again, the, the Nord Stream stuff, I, I think really, you know, was it jumping the shark in many ways. Um, and again, the, the, the news story of, again, of, of, of the non-state Ukrainian actors, you know, that's kind of some, some sort of ragtag team um, bobbing Nord Stream. It, it really does stretch, um, you know, one's, one's <laughs> belief there. Um, obviously there, there is a dynamic there with Germany, which I, I there's some growing tension, I think with, with Germany and, and other, uh, with, with, with the U S and others. I know there was, there was a bit of an online spat earlier this week with, uh, JD Vance, who has always been a skeptic of the war issue with the German ambassador, um, Hungary is, is a nation within Europe that is, is, you know, calling for peace rather than continuation, this sort of stuff. Um, you know, it, it was, I believe, a German report that's, that, that brought us to the, the Ukrainian non-state actor aspect to it. Um, you know, there, there's still, though, beyond the, the Seymour Hirsch article, which pointed fingers at Panama City trained divers right down the road from me. I know that base well. Um, you know, being the alleged American arm of, you know, his uh, analysis of what happened with the pipeline. There's other indications out there, including some released text messages from former Prime Minister Liz Truss uh, about uh, England's involvement when it, uh, with, with that. Uh, Tom Luongo, um, who, who I enjoy reading, whose stuff is regularly republished over at Lou Rockwell, um, he, he has a very sort of interesting heterodox view of things amongst fellow heterodox thinkers on that. Um, definitely worth, worth checking out on that sort of stuff and, and kind of the, 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 the Anglo's influence on this entire dynamic. But it, at the end of the day, though, I mean, like, you, you, it, it, it does show just how the insanity of what they were trying to force us down, you know, the, the narrative they're trying to force down our throats on that issue. It has major consequences in terms of inter-European dynamics and, you know, the, the, the devastation done to their economy and particularly German interests within that. And then at the same time, while you have that, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out exactly what, what, what the fallout is of that dynamic and the continuing reports on that. You've got now active terrorist cells killing Russian citizens in Russia. And now, again, obviously, Russia, you know, Ukrainian citizens are being killed as a byproduct of, of, of Putin's invasion there. You know, this is not, you know, how dare Ukraine, you know, go after Russia. But, you know, beyond any, you know, you're, 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 however you, you, you work out the morality of war, um, from that dynamic, the way that that will that, that that plants the seeds of further escalation from Russia and the way they approach Crimea, um, given the fact that American foreign policy still seems to be uh, the, the unquestioned support of Ukrainian takeover of Crimea, 
Um, and the Don Boss, which is just an absolutely insane objective. Again, I mean, is is you know th there is we we're no closer to anything sane or rational over a year after the conflict here. And if anything, again, all the concerns that we have had about the ability for NATO and the U.S. Um, to contain to contain the, the the aspects of this conflict to prevent it from from spinning out of control. Um, you know, we, we are closer to it spinning out of control now than we have been since the start. And again, I, I'm, I'm not saying we're going to get the worst case scenario in here, but again, this, this is a terrifying situation. And again, the, the disconnect that, you know, the reality of the ground to what your average member of Congress thinks, or again, the level of, of, of interest of your average American, which is the only way of perhaps getting any leverage on the policymakers. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's classic frustration and uh, the another enjoyment of the fruits of American democracy. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to that issue of the only the only way they listen to you is if they're afraid of you. Um, these elected officials is, yeah, does it is there any chance? I mean, I don't think it's too early to start talking about the 2024 election. Right. I mean, the primaries, uh, at least presidential primaries, not that far off, really. Uh, <laughs> and uh, do, does anyone in Congress, do they have to worry about being primaried over any foreign policy issue at all? I mean, I think that's it, right? Uh, it's going to be, it's got a long road ahead of us if, if the answer is no, I think. Well, and, and that's where the question really comes into what is Ron DeSantis' foreign policy going to look like? Um, and then you have that being contrasted with, with Trump. Um, you know, the Trump wing is trying to brand you know, Ron DeSantis as a globalist neocon, which is an analysis that I, I, I do not agree with. Um, but it, it is very telling, I think, where a couple of weeks ago when Ron DeSantis was on you know, the, the, that, that great platform for serious international relations conversation, Fox and Friends, um, you know, as part of his book tour, um, he, he explicitly mentioned, you know, I, you know he, he you know, gave some sort of generic things like, oh, you know, we shouldn't be sending money without strings to Russia, which is fine. It's kind of the mainstream opinion there. And how you define the strings is kind of the, the key of the game. He, he did explicitly mention that it is not America's national self-interest to be to, to be supporting a Ukrainian victory vision that requires the takeover of Crimea and the Donbass regions. And so if, if you have, which is currently the, foreign policy of the United States that we, we will support the Ukrainian government until they take back these territories. And so the fact that you have DeSantis signaling that you have Donald Trump, who has given, I think, less concrete positions on it, but has, has taken a very reflexive, and this is as he has throughout most of his, his recent political career, right? He's taken a, he's taken reflexive stands against interventionism. Um, you know, he had a YouTube video or he had, he had a, he had a, he had a truth video a couple of weeks ago, um, railing against the military industrial complex. If you didn't see it, it's because it was a truth video, um, neither here nor there. And, and so I, I think that you're going to have DeSantis and Trump. And my, my hope is that that competition there is going to kind of force DeSantis um, to to almost I, I, I think Trump, I think DeSantis is going to take some stands that are going to surprise some people within the foreign policy realm um, to signal to that, that national conservative sort of base out there that he's not going to be a return to Bush era policy follow through being another thing. 
um, you're going to see, I think, the conflict is going to be on the other side where you have the Nikki Haley's. Um, I, I fully expect Tim Scott to, to be McConnell's choice within the primary. And you're going to see, if you look for any sort of silver lining, I think you're going to see the stat, the, the you know, Bush-era foreign policy wing of the GOP once again just get completely demolished by the other side of it and that the civil war between Trump and DeSantis are going to have people you know, taking a much more rational approach to foreign affairs. Again, whether or not that, that has any sort of follow through is going to depend on personnel and political will and, and, you know, all those sort of factors that, you know, we should not trust politicians on in advance. Um, but I, I do think there's, again, another reason for some hope that at least the presidential primary could create some good political capital there. I do not expect it really, though, to be a, a major issue on, you know, say your your local congressional race, unfortunately. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and let that be the last word on uh, this topic for this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>